Sometimes when people mess up, when they make mistakes, when they act in ways they shouldn't act, they blame their environment, their parents, the people they're around, the situation that they are in, the society, uh, where they grew up, those kinds of things. They say that's to blame. Now, we're not quite there yet, but in a few weeks, Lord willing, we'll see the first sin when Adam and Eve sinned against the Lord. And what we'll see tonight in Genesis chapter 2 is they can't in any way blame their circumstances. They can't blame their environment. Some of you may be familiar uh, with uh, the poem Paradise Lost by John Milton. In a sense, what we're going to see this evening is paradise not yet lost. This is the paradise that God put Adam and Eve into in Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. And as we start working through this text, I want to to read through it and then uh, to come back and consider its relationship to uh, the section we've already looked at in chapter 1 up through verse 3 of chapter 2. Let's begin reading in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 14. We're going to read through verse 17. Thus the heavens, oh, sorry, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted. The Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers, the name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. The Delium and the Onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris. It flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. And the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. This section has created uh, some concern for some people because they think that in this passage, we have a second account of creation. There's actually a theory that goes back a couple hundred years that says the whole book of Genesis, really the whole Pentateuch, was put together by four different editors or four different people that someone later came on and put it all together. And someone had the first account of the creation, which is chapter one up through verse three. And they actually often will say the very first part of verse four. And then the second part of verse four up through uh, chapter four is a second account. Someone else came in and this is their different account of creation. But that doesn't really match up with uh, the structure of Genesis as a whole in the language here. In fact, that that belief, that idea has largely, I think, become uh, not believed among people who are carefully reading the book of Genesis. 
That's in part because there is a structure in the book of Genesis that you see, that we see for the first time here in verse four of chapter two. You'll see the beginning, this is the account of the heavens and the earth. That's a phrase that shows up several different times through the book. It shows up in chapter five and verse one, chapter six, verse nine, 10, one, 11, 10, and, and so on. Sometimes you'll see it translated, these are the generations of so-and-so. Or as the NASB does here, this is the account. Because sometimes it is actually talking about a genealogy. This is the offspring of this person. Uh, more often it's, this is the offspring of this person and what ended up happening either with this person or their offspring. And, and so later on, you'll, you'll see this is the account or generations of Adam. And basically it goes through, this is what came of Adam. So here we don't have a person, we have the heavens and the earth. But remember, it's not saying this is where this person came from. It's saying this is what happened from this person. And so the heading of this section, it's not saying this is how the heavens and the earth came into existence. In a sense, it's moving on from the fact that we already have the heavens and the earth. The heavens and earth are there in chapter one. Now let's see what came of it. And we're introduced now to the Garden of Eden and, and man and, and, and woman living in the Garden of Eden and then their test with the tree. And so it's moving on from that initial account. And so it's really looking ahead and focusing on man and the Garden of Eden. And really what we find in chapter two is an expansion of day six from chapter one. And you can think about this in one of two ways. Uh, you might think of it as if there's a different camera angle that we're looking at this story. In chapter one, we were looking from this angle, but chapter two is giving us a different angle. And, and sometimes we see that in other places in scripture. The four different gospels, for example, often will talk about the same thing happening, but they'll talk about it from a different angle. So in one sense, what we see in chapter one and chapter two is the same event, but from different angles. Probably a bit more, though, what we see is, in a sense, a slow motion. That chapter one moved pretty quickly through day six. Chapter two is going to slow things down a little bit. And, and when you slow things down, what do you see? Well, sometimes you see more than you saw the first time because it happened so quickly. You didn't realize everything that was going on. So in chapter two, we have a slowed down account of what's happening on day six. And in particular, what's happening on day six is God preparing the Garden of Eden, that, that we've moved from the universe as a whole and started to focus in a little bit on the land, the land that God has prepared for Adam and Eve to live in. And we even begin to see that in verse four in the language that's used. Notice the first time, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord made earth and heaven, which is almost never given in that order. Almost every single time in the Old Testament, it's heavens and earth, heavens and earth. And you hear it's switched, earth and heaven. Why? Because we're not really talking about the universe as a whole anymore. We're starting to narrow in on where Adam is living. And we're starting to focus specifically on the land, the Garden of Eden. And that's what we see beginning in verse five. Now, no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord had not sent rain upon the earth. And there was no man to cultivate the ground. Now, this is a verse that sometimes causes people to say there's actually contradictions between 
the account in chapter one in this account. Because if this is day six, didn't we have plants on day three? And the answer, I think, is at least one of two possibilities. The first, which I think is, is very clear, is we're not talking about everywhere around the earth. We're talking specifically the garden that God's making for Adam and Eve. Then in this garden, we don't have these things yet. But secondarily, I think there might be an emphasis on a different kind of vegetation here. Now, back in, on day three, it specifically talked about plants that had seeds yielding fruit after their own kind. And so you have some plants and some vegetation that just kind of grow. You don't have to do anything. Here, it seems that these are vegetation that you need some help to grow. Because it says there's not these things. Why? Verse 5. But because God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. And so these are plants that you need someone to kind of plant and to take care of in order to grow. And, and probably... Uh, these are pointing in some ways to what's going to be described after the fall when God actually curses the ground. He mentions that Adam is going to now have to eat the plants, the same kind of word. This is how he's going to get his bread. So probably the plants here would be like grains that you would grow in order to, to form bread. But now it's going to be hard for him. And then secondly, he mentions thorns and thistles, which many say probably is related to the idea of shrubs here that shrubs would not yet be thorns and thistles, but it might be the kinds of things that develop into thorns and thistles after the curse. And so these aren't there yet because God's not yet set up man and established the garden for him. And so in verse six, we see how God is dealing with this problem. There's no water. Well, so there's no rain. So what's he doing? Well, right now there's a mist that rises from the earth and waters the whole surface of the ground. Again, there's some debate. Uh, should this mist actually be translated streams? Some of you might have a, a translation that says something like there are streams um, or springs, because the question is, is it a kind of mist or is it actually some type of subterranean water source that's springing up into the garden to water it? And to be honest, I don't know that we can know for sure because this word's only used twice in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Greek translation of this passage, they do use the word for springs or, or streams. The other place they use the word for like a vapor or mist, which makes us think, I don't know what it is here. I don't think we need to know other than there's some kind of water that God's using at this point in time to help water the garden. And then secondly, verse seven, and this is really where this, this three verses have been moving. He now forms a man to take care of the garden. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Now, in a sense, this is the first act we actually see. Up to this point in time, it's just been telling us this is the circumstances. This is what's happening right now. And now God actually begins to act. And what does he do? Well, he forms man. And the language really points to uh, almost like a potter who's forming clay or a goldsmith who's crafting something. And so there's, there's thought and design that goes into this. I think it is also interesting, many have pointed out that, that God, in a sense, is getting his hands dirty in this, in this passage. He's putting his hands into the dirt in order to form mankind. And yet man is not living yet. And so what needs to happen is God then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. 
that he takes a dead creature and makes him a living creature. And there you see at the end, so therefore man became a living being. Now, some of you may remember the King James, man became a living soul. Because of that, sometimes people think this is pointing to the fact that man now has a soul and animals don't. Uh, I think living being is probably a better translation because this phrase is used to talk about animals in this section. So at this point, it is just talking about life. Certainly from scripture, we understand man has a spiritual uh, component as well as a material component. Man is both body and spirit or body and soul. I don't think that's specifically what's being designated here. I think here it's more generally that he is now living, although certainly the emphasis in, in chapter one on man being in the image of God and the special care that God puts into making man, I think points to a special relationship that man has with God. Then in verse eight, God begins to form the garden for man. And again, he's getting his hands dirty. He's planting a garden toward the east. You say, well, didn't he already have trees and stuff? Well, remember, we're not talking about the earth now. We're talking about the land, specifically the garden. God's now forming a garden, a place for Adam in order to dwell and to live. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord caused to grow every tree that's pleasing to the sight and good for food. And so here we begin to see God's provision and his bounty, that he's creating an abundance of trees. And these trees are described as as pleasing. They're attractive. Their appearance is good, and they are good for eating. And in particular, two trees are highlighted, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I think it's, it's probably helpful to, to think about these trees, not as if these trees themselves somehow have some kind of special power within their fruit. It's not as though the fruit of the tree of life is made of something special that if you eat it, it gives you life. And the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil is something special that if you eat it, it gives you the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, in part because where does life come from? Well, it certainly doesn't come from that tree. And come from the one who put it there. Life comes from God. I think instead, these are designated as trees to demonstrate certain truths about God and his relationship to humans. That he is the giver of life and he has set up a place in which mankind could have life. That he could provide and man could be sustained through God's provision. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we'll probably talk a little bit more when we actually get to chapter three. But for now, I think, think of it not as um, a special, you know, fruit that gives you some kind of special insight to the knowledge of good and evil. That instead, the knowledge of good and evil is saying, being able to discern between good and evil. That to know good and evil is to be able to say, this is good and this is evil. And in scripture, we see this phrase used in other places like this, in which essentially the person said, God already made the decision. And so you can't speak any good or evil about this anymore. And what this tree is saying is it's telling mankind, you don't get to decide what's good and what's evil. God gets to decide that. And if you were to take this fruit and eat it, you would be saying, I want to decide for myself what is good and evil. But man doesn't get to do that. Only God gets to have that kind of knowledge, that kind of judgment 
the ability to discern between good and evil. In verses 10 to 14, there's kind of an aside. Up until this point, God's been acting. Now it just kind of gives a broader description. This is what is also happening within the garden. This is what's also there. And we find four rivers. And these rivers are, again, a sign of blessing and life. This is flowing water. It's flowing through Eden. And we have gold and precious stones that are there. These precious stones are also used in other places to describe the priestly garments and used in the tabernacle. And it's also, they show up again in the New Jerusalem. And the new temple. And so in some ways, this is pointing to the, the, the place that God is going to interact with mankind. He's going to dwell with them. And it does show us that God does care about beauty. God doesn't just make a, a garden in which everything's just kind of brown. But there's beauty and there's treasure. There's a, a great place in which mankind can live. Now, occasionally people want to know So does this tell us where Eden was? In part because two of the rivers we find elsewhere described in the Bible. And I'm going to tell you, first of all, I I don't think we could tell exactly where Eden was for two reasons. One, God closed it up after Adam and Eve leave. We'll see that in a few weeks. Uh, Secondly, probably in a few months, we'll see the flood destroyed the world that existed. And so probably Eden was destroyed with this flood. And I even think it's possible that the rivers that we see elsewhere in the Old Testament, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates, I don't know that we could definitively say they're the same. Um, it's certainly possible that those were rivers that people knew about. And so when they named a new river, they used that language because that's often what humans do. Uh, for example, if you were to drive uh, to my mother-in-law's house in Canada, you'll pass by London and Paris, and Cambridge, and you will not be in Europe. Why are they named that way? Because people from there came over and named it after places they already knew about. So I think it's at least possible that these rivers in the Old Testament aren't even the same rivers of the Garden of Eden. Um, But ultimately, the point is, I don't think we can know where Eden was. This is just pointing to the fact that, that God had set up a great place a place of bounty, a place of beauty. And in verse 15, we find God's purpose and command for humanity. And here we see that paradise, from a biblical perspective, is not someone sitting on a couch, reclining with people, fanning them with palm leaves and feeding them grapes. But instead, paradise is a place in which people are working. They are productive. And so we find here that God, in verse 15, takes the man and puts him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Those words, cultivate and keep, are also used to describe service in the temple. They are there to serve and they are to protect and guard the temple. So again, I think we we see this is pointing to mankind serving the Lord, mankind living in response to God, worshiping God. In particular, uh, cultivate, I think we'd be talking about, you know, bringing new life, creating new things, uh, especially uh, life within the garden, keeping, protecting, uh, cutting back that which might uh, harm. And this, again, helps us to, to maybe see the opposite of how we tend to think of human history. In human history, what do we think? That the state of nature is this wild 
chaotic, uncultivated reality. And, and the problem is when mankind comes in and starts to put in structure and starts to put in order. But that's the opposite of what we see in Scripture. That, that God doesn't just place mankind into some random chaotic world. But he actually puts them into a place that that's, has order and has a garden and it's cultivated and he's there to keep it and to guard it. Additionally, mankind himself was not originally a, a hunter and a forager. He was a, a farmer. He was a gardener. That he didn't somehow progress to that level. In fact, he probably regressed to that level. But we'll see as we continue to work through this. And one other thought in relationship to this. You may remember in Genesis 1, we saw the dominion mandate. That God, when he made man and woman, what did he say? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. And so what was man's ultimate task? Subdue the whole earth. Did Adam have any chance of that? No. And so God didn't start him with, all right, let's do the whole earth, Adam. God started him with, Here, here's, here's your area. You're going to deal with this garden. This is what I give to you. He doesn't overload Adam, but he gives him a task that Adam was capable of fulfilling. And then he gives him a command. The first command is enjoy my bountiful provision. From any tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But the second part of the command is this, but not the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And, and we'll talk about this again, probably, as we look at the, when Adam and Eve do sin and eat the, the fruit of the tree. But I think this language here is not necessarily saying the very day you eat it, you will die. It's more or less saying when you eat it, your death is certain. And again, we, we see language like this in other places. For um, example, uh, Pharaoh, when he tells Moses, for the day that you see me, you're going to die. I don't think he's necessarily saying, I will kill you that day. He's saying, if you see my face again, you're a dead man. And so here he's saying, if you eat this fruit, you're a dead man. Your death has been sealed. It is certain if you disobey this command. And so as we consider God's provision of this paradise for mankind, what, what do we begin to see? Well, I think one thing we see is that man is fearfully and wonderfully made. That God, as a master craftsman, forms man from the dust of the ground. Occasionally, I see people who try to argue against creation. And they'll say things like, I mean, who, why would we think that we're designed? I mean, the human, human anatomy, human biology, there's things that make no sense. It's crazy. I would never design something like that myself. And I will simply, first of all, note that anyone who makes that criticism has never successfully designed any living creature. And so it seems a little bit presumptuous to think, well, I could have done it better because you can't even do it. Additionally, we tend to think, well, why would you put these things two, two things together? Or why is this here? It doesn't seem to have a purpose or function. But I think in some ways that'd be me like looking at a car engine and saying, you know what, this part seems a little weird. Let me just pull that out. And I have no knowledge of how a car engine works. 
And so I could come in and I could say, well, this seems weird. I don't know why I'd put this here. I think I'd put it over there. But I'm talking out of ignorance. I'm talking out of folly. I don't have the kind of knowledge and expertise to be able to say, this is how it should be done. And none of us have the kind of knowledge and expertise to say, this is how humanity should be designed. Now, certainly, are there times in which we could say this doesn't seem right? And the answer is, well, yes, because mankind now is in a fallen state. There are diseases, there are mutations, there are things that I think we can pretty clearly say this is not the right kind of design. And yet, mankind is still, in general, beautifully and wonderfully and fearfully made by a gracious and loving God. As well as we consider mankind, this passage, I think, helps us to, to realize mankind, in many ways, is low. Because what are we made from? Dirt. We're, we're made from nothing. And so in one sense, there's nothing for us to take pride in. And yet, we have an incredibly high place of privilege. Because even think about the way that it's described and how God gives us breath. He breathes into his nostrils. It doesn't get any more intimate than breathing into someone else's nose. And that's how God says, this is how I gave life to mankind. It's a very personal, very close kind of relationship. And certainly we see within this context that we were made to know this God. That he wanted to have a relationship with humanity. And he demonstrated that from the very beginning of his creation. And yet, even in the garden, man is not immortal. Man does not have life in himself. That for Adam to live, he would need life from God. The tree of life is pointing to that reality. That if man were to live, it would be because of God's provision. And he has to continue to depend on God for his life. Finally, in some ways, as we look at what we see here in Genesis 2, we can look forward, just like joy to the world. Christ came, he's going to come again. Here's God's creation. In many ways, this is what his new creation will be like. And yet, his new creation will be even better. Because Christ is better than Adam. That in this state, paradise was not yet perfected because mankind was not yet confirmed in holiness. That Adam needed to learn obedience by following God's command to to work and keep the garden and not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. In Hebrews 5, what do we find about Jesus Christ? That although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And why is that? Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, so also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul or a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Adam was given life by God. 
Jesus Christ has life in himself. And therefore, he has the power not just to be alive, but to give life to those who come to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you know how to create that which is good and holy and righteous and good. We thank you that you know how to redeem that which has fallen. That one day you will make all things new. For all eternity, we'll be able to enjoy your bounteous provision. We'll be able to, to be sustained through your life-giving spirit. We'll be able to work and to, to create and to sustain the world that you make. And that for all eternity, we will be able to know you face to face. Help us to long for that day. Amen. Pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.